Welcome to Control the Controllables. I'm Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis Academy in Spain, and we've teamed up with Max Tennis Academy in Ireland. We've brought this podcast together to entertain, educate, and energize the tennis community through the different lenses of the sport that we love. From Grand Slam champions to those at grassroots level, from sports journalists to backroom staff, Our aim is truly to get under the bonnet of the tennis world at all levels. So sit back and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 117 of Control the Controllables. When we started this podcast 14 months ago, I never imagined I'd have the opportunity to speak to this man. When we started working together, Roger wanted to get back to number one. And he wanted to win another major. So that day, that happened. He won. And then a few weeks later, I think he became number one again. So that was great. But I just remember him being, you know, he's always very calm. You know, I know he's nervous inside, but he's always very calm. And and for me, I felt horrible for him because I'm a huge Andy Murray fan. And obviously with my history working at the LTA for four years, but I was so thrilled for Roger to see him come back and win that. And that was, of course, Paul Anacone, the coach of the great Pete Sampras, Tim Henman, Roger Federer, Sloane Stevens, the current coach of Taylor Fritz. But he was also a Grand Slam champion himself back in 1985, winning the Australian Open Doubles Championships. He was as high as number 12 in the world in the singles he made the quarterfinals of Wimbledon as a 246-ranked player in the world. And he got up to number three in the world in doubles. What actually really fascinated me, because we had Tom Gullickson on the show a few weeks ago, he was the coach that stepped in when the late, great Tim Gullickson sadly passed away when he was Pete Sampras's coach. He took the reins, he learnt from Tim, and then he went on to coach Pete for seven, eight years. I believe he was part of nine of his Grand Slam wins. He is such a kind-hearted man. When you speak to him, you can see why he has become a world-class coach working with some of the greats of the game because he really does make you feel comfortable when you speak to him and he's got brilliant insight that he shares with us. I wish I had longer. I really do. We had 40 minutes. He was, it was in the middle of a rain break between Taylor Fritz and Novak Djokovic last week at the Rome Masters, which he was watching from his house in California. And we managed to get on to the phone to have the conversation And I'm sure it's going to enrich your day wherever you are. So sit back and enjoy. I'm going to pass you over to Paul Anacone. So Paul Anacone, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for your patience. I tell you, we've been playing uh, a little bit of tag trying to figure out when to do this. So thanks for your nimble footwork like our (laughs) friend Dan Evans. Absolutely. And actually, what a place to start because now that you're coaching... Taylor Fritz, and they've come against each other this week in Rome. You were you the secret ingredient in this relatively oh, easy win yeah, this week? Absolutely, absolutely. It's all about me, Dan. I'm <laughs> I'm the one that uh, that works the magic. No, it's it's actually been for me. It's been really fun to watch Dan's um, 
progress, you know, to watch him start to come into his own and play so well. And, and we've stayed in touch through the years. Um, so for, for Dan to start playing such good tennis and, and to be in it day in and day out, it's been really a treat for me. Um, I've got a, a special place for Dan. He's, he's actually a, a lovely guy and he's had his challenges as we all have, um, but it's nice to see him playing good tennis. And look, he just Taylor beat him uh, in Rome and played, Played, played better. That wasn't one of Dan's better matches lately, but he's played such good tennis. You know, you're not going to play great every time. And Taylor's a tough matchup. Hits the ball really hard. But uh, all in all, it's been fun to watch Dan Evans' progress. He's doing real well. Oh, absolutely. And on and on the Taylor one, you're, you're in California. He's mm-hmm. he's in Rome. How, mm-hmm. how is that something? Have you been doing any traveling? Are you not doing the traveling right now? And how is it then coaching someone at that level from afar? Well, you know, I have been the last couple of years since pan- the pandemic hit. It's been a little challenging. You know, I was at the French Open last year with Taylor. Um, so the downside is I haven't been at many tournaments. The upside is we've had a lot more time in LA than we would have had. So. Mm-hmm. We've had uh, basically more than double the amount of time here than normal. Um, so for me, as much as players like to have the camaraderie of a coach there, uh, I actually feel like this time is more important. And with today's media, I can see every single match anyway. I see every match he plays. We talk before every match. Um, and he's got um, David Nankin's been coaching him with me for longer than I've been there. David's a, an amazing coach, been with the USTA for a number of years and has coached a ton of great players. So David and I kind of work together. And when David or I can't go, the USTA has been very helpful in sending people like um, uh, this week, um, Mikey Russell's with him in, in Rome and Mikey Russell was with him in Madrid. Mike Russell's a great coach. And uh, J.Y. Albon was, has been with him some who also coaches Riley Opelka. So it's a nice mix, you know, and one of the biggest things for me when you have that, it's always like, well, is it too many voices? So I, I'm really clear from the beginning, as is the rest of the team, that the messaging is the same. The yep. personalities that deliver it might be different, but the messaging is the same. Because if they start, the players start to get a lot of different thoughts going on, then it gets confusing, um, especially when they're out on the road. So it's all pretty simple, basic themes, but different personalities delivering it, which in some ways is very refreshing because otherwise Taylor probably gets sick of me by now. Now he's got yeah. some different voices that are also saying stuff to him. So it's worked really well. And, and um, it's been a great ride. And like I said, he's got a great team around him. Um, Wolfgang Oswald is his physio that travels with him, who I think is off the charts, how good he is with the, uh, understanding the body, knowing uh, rest, recovery, injury, and also strength and conditioning. So he, he's got he's got a really good core group around him, and, and um, it's made it a lot of fun for me. I think it's, it's nice to hear that, Paul, because I think running a, a tennis academy, we will get a lot of parents who demand – the same coach to be on every session to spend every minute with the players from, from a young age. And I think if it's done correctly, as you say, and the messaging is clear and there is very clearly someone who's leading that as well, it's nice to hear that that can be done at the top end of the game. And I guess your belief is that can also be done as you go down the levels as well. Yeah, I think so. I, you know, look, I think when the players are younger in the early developmental years, consistency is more important in buying into a voice, you know, when they're real young, I think it's more of a dictatorial kind of molding stage when they're younger. 
But then the messaging about the development of strategy and, and technique and philosophy, I, I think it's pretty important that it's similar. Like I said, in many ways, different personalities saying the same thing is refreshing. And I said that before. I think one of the challenges, look, I've been on the road with uh, Roger for four years and Sampras for almost eight and, and Tim Henman for four and a half it gets stale. It's hard for the players. You know, it's hard for the players and they're all really dear friends. They're still all really dear friends of mine, but at some point you have to find new ways to say the same thing. And, and that's challenging. So by having a different person in there um, that is on the same page, but saying it with a different tone or different personality, that can be helpful. But the key is that everyone communicates together and clearly, because if it's all disjointed in individual sports, it can become a big mess. Because as you know, like in, you know, in European football, most of the players conform to the manager's philosophy, right? Yeah. The manager's got his philosophy or her philosophy about how they want to do things. In the individual sport in tennis, I've found, okay, how do I say the same thing to a different personality? Well, I coach Pete way different than I coach Tim. And then I coach Tim way different than I coached Roger. And I coach Roger way different than I coach Sloan Stevens. So you have to figure out what buttons to push to get through to that individual personality. And for me, that's part of the job. And I actually enjoy that part of it. I'm going to get drawn into talking about Paul Anico and the coach here, which because mm -hmm. there's so many things that I want to go into. I am going to jump back into you as a player, but there, there is a point I want to take up there, Paul. It, when you're talking about, coaching those different players and, and having obviously a different way with them. Is there non-negotiables that you have as a coach that stand in place, no matter who the player is, and then you adapt your, your way, your style, or, or are you flexible almost in, in all areas? Well, I think philosophically as a coach to me, also you have to remember the players that I've been lucky enough to coach are some of them are all, you know, they're all time greats, you know? So I, I probably have learned more than that from them than they've learned from me. But but I, I think philosophically as a coach, you need to have an open mind. You, know, you need to hear what the player's feeling because that relates to what they're doing, right? And, and so I think a lot of it is being aware of, of understanding their personality and how they operate. And then you can figure out, you know, why things happen. It's easy to see what happened. But as a coach, you have to figure out why it's happened. So in terms of non-negotiables, the only thing to me that's a non-negotiable, as long as the player is professional and exhausts all their resources to do the best they can, that's all I care about. You know, that for me, that's pretty much a given. That's why they're professional athletes. You know, they get paid to do it. So it's a job. As long as they do that, I'm, I'm totally fine. And, and that brings up some interesting topics because sometimes you have to convince them that maybe they're not right about something that they're trying to do. And that's not always easy. You know, you yeah. better be pretty buttoned up or you better be pretty creative in your ways to have dialogue because it's not combative. You're not dealing with a 12 year old that you're punishing. You know, you have to yeah. figure out how to get them to feel like, Oh, that makes sense. Maybe I'm missing something here. And, and to me, that's where I've been lucky because, you know, Tim and Roger and Pete for those three that I've been the longest with, as great as they all were, they're incredibly open to hearing why you feel how you feel. And, mm -hmm. and when you're that great, there's a lot of 
propensity to be closed-minded and so stubborn mm. that you can't convince them of anything. And none of those players were like that. And that was a blessing for me because I was, that's how I was able to impact. And, and to me, that's unbelievably flattering because that means that they respected what I said, which is great. But is that one of the attributes of a great that they've got that open mind as well? Or have you come across other greats that you've not worked with who have that closed mindset? No, I think they do because I think that, you know, it's a matter of differentiating, right? I mean, it's one of the things I'm going through with Taylor Fritz right now. He's 23 years old, still developing around 30 in the world. One of his biggest assets is he's unbelievably stubborn and yeah. strong-minded. One of his biggest liabilities is that he's unbelievably stubborn. And, and, yeah. and so it's a matter of balancing that. I don't want to disrupt that, disrupt that on-the-court stubbornness of, I'm going to compete no matter what. I'm going to try to problem solve. No, I don't want to distract that. I don't want to take away from that. But I do want him, and he's gotten better. I do want him to be a little bit more open and aware of some of the messaging that he's hearing, not just from me, but from David Nankin and Wolfgang Oswald and the people, his team around him. Because sometimes that stubbornness goes goes a little bit too far there when perhaps that's holding him back a little bit, but that's part of his learning curve and, and yeah. he's getting better at it. But as a coach, I've got a balance, right? I don't want to crush that stubbornness. Then all of a sudden have him, you know, like a, a wet marshmallow on the court, not able to use that stubbornness to his strength. Right. Yeah. So again, those are part of the subtle nuances I find in coaching that are really interesting and fun and challenging to deal with. Absolutely. And now you as a player, were you stubborn? Were you difficult to work with? Where, how early was your philosophies almost as a coach starting to grow? If you go back into your, I guess, even junior days, I know you were, mm -hmm. an, or, you were an Orange Bowl winner. So you were mm -hmm. already a, a very successful junior at, at a certain age. How were you back in those times? Well, I, I had a very strong coach as a junior. Nick Volatari was my coach from when was I was he? about thir yeah, 13 to 18 or 17. And then I had another very strong college coach, Mike DePalmer Sr., the late, great Mike DePalmer Sr. Um, so I had two very strong personalities coaching me. And then my brother actually coached me at the latter stages of my college career through most of my pro career. My brother, because he was my brother and he's older, and because we had that bond, um, he had to have, a, a, I thought, you know, he's an unbelievable coach. He didn't get nearly enough credit as he deserved because he had to walk that balance of always being on the road with me, knowing all the personal nuances, personality stuff. So I was kind of molded by those three people around me philosophically about how I coached. And I think I was pretty stubborn, but in a weird way, I actually got way too insecure way too quickly with my game. I had a very atypical game. I used to come to the net on everything and that was where I was good. So I chipped in charge all the time and, and I had a lot of people whispering in my ear saying, you know, you got to get better from the back of the court. You got to do all these things and get more solid. In the meantime, I was 12 in the world and people are telling me all that stuff. And I basically, I basically abandoned getting better at what had gotten me there, get trying to get better and started doing other things. And all of a sudden my ranking went from 12 to 38. And so you know, my brother fought me the whole time. And he was like, you know, it's fine to work on your weaknesses. But let's remember what your strengths are. And I went too far towards the weaknesses. Yeah. So I got to 38 in the world. And I said to my brother, you know, what's the deal? You know, I, I, I've done all this hard work, I'm crushing it and doing all my what I'm supposed to do. And he said, 
you look much better losing now. Yeah. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, the points are much better and you're losing. You look much better losing. And, and he just kind of had a chuckle and I was like, that makes sense. Yeah. The points are longer. He said, but you've gotten away from what got you to where you are. He said, that's got to be your foundation. And right after he told me that was interesting because right after he told me that literally about a month later, I won Vienna, the ATP event in Vienna. And I just got back to my old ways and I never got back to where I was, but he was so right. So ironically, I was a little bit too insecure about my style of play. I think that that hurt me a bit. So again, all these experiential things for me go into the memory banks now of how I try to operate when I'm thinking about what Taylor feels like at four all in the third, you know, what's going on in terms of his practice, what, you know, I find some people think you don't have to play to be a good coach. And I don't think you have to, but I know for me, it's been unbelievably valuable, you know, cause I remember what it feels like to walk on center court at Wimbledon to play Edberg. You know, I remember, and it's hard to describe those feelings, but what, even after all these years, they'll still pretty pure on my mind and body, you know, yeah. playing McEnroe center court at the U S open, you know, for me, it was, it's been valuable. I think there's great coaches that haven't played, but I also know for me, it helps me understand the player's mentality much more, yeah. much more empathetic about what they're going through. That makes a lot of sense because I, I've always asked, I, I like asking about coaches. I'm always curious about the best coaches out there. And I, through your time when you were working in England, even our paths maybe only crossed once as we talked about before in Australia, I always was asking my colleagues in England, what, what is Paul, you know, what does Paul bring? And what I always heard about you was how much you focused on the strengths that you would, that you would really talk to the players about the strengths before they play and really building their strengths. Mm -hmm. Firstly, is that true? <laughs> is that, yeah. is the word on you true? And secondly, I guess well, that sounds like it was shaped from your early experiences. It was, it was shaped, but I, look, I, I think one of the most important things for players developmental progress is their identity, knowing who they are and why they're successful. Um, I think it's different at different stages that when you're coaching and teaching a young player, you're helping them form their identity, right? You're helping them understand who they are and how they play well, what their physical and mental assets are and how to maximize them. Once they get a little bit older, I, I think by the time they're kind of 17, 18 on, it's more about them understanding who they are and yeah. how they're going to be closest to whatever their potential is. So you have to get them to understand that. And, and to, the way they understand that is to understand what their strengths are. That doesn't mean disregard the weaknesses. Yeah. It just means understand their strengths. But, you know, when you look at that, that to me is really important. And I, I you know, I'm a, as I've gotten older, perhaps I've started to think too much, but I really believe so much of what happens is how you react. And, um, I, I think the best players that I've and the most successful people in the world that I've ever seen figure out how to think their way through emotion. They figure out how to think their way through stress and they figure out how to manage adversity. So for me, as I've gotten older, that's one of the other things that I harp on. Show me, you know, my, one of my biggest coaching philosophies is don't show me what you do on your good days. Show me what you do on your average days. Show me what you do when there's trouble. Show me how you, when 
you know, Pete Sampras taught me this. 23-year-old Pete Sampras taught me this. When he was 23 years old, I'll digress into a little anecdote here. When he was 23 years old, I said um, the late, great Tim Gullickson, who was homesick, um, battling brain cancer, was mentoring me on how to coach Pete because I was trying to help Pete until Tim got well, which unfortunately didn't happen. But Tim was mentoring me and Pete was having a hard time on the road during the clay. And I said, Gully, you know, what do I do? What do I do? Am I saying the right things? And he said, don't worry. I said, don't worry. He's going to be just fine. Keep it simple. Talk about his strengths, make things really simplistic. And I was on a flight with Pete and I said to him about the clay court season or whatever going into Wimbledon, you know, it's been his tough clay court swing. What do you think we should do? You know, what do we need to do to get you really ready for the grass? And he said, yeah, I think I've overthought the clay this year. I think I went too far strategically. Just went through two or three things in literally 45 seconds. And then he said, when I get to the grass, he said, it'll be fine said, I'll go home. Let's go home, work on some serves, some returns. And when I get to the grass, I'll be fine. And I said, really, that's it. And he goes, he goes, yeah. He said, you know, he said, one of my biggest strengths isn't the fact that I can play great. I know that I can play great. When I play great, I know I'm not going to lose, you know? And he said it very, not arrogantly, just very matter of fact. I know nice not he said, yeah. He said, but what my big, one of my biggest strengths actually is when I play average, I'm probably going to beat 80 to 90% of the guys anyway. So if I can keep my mind when I'm playing average, that's going to get me to quarters or semis of tournaments. And then I will play well. And I was like, okay. So I just thought about it. And he was like, so don't have, don't make a big deal out of not playing great, figure out what you have on the day and then use that. And, and he was 23 when he told me that. And it, to this day, it still resonates. And I was like, wow, that's pretty amazing for a 23 year old. And it was very, it was really simple. It wasn't an arrogant thing. It wasn't like, and so I pressed him on it and pressed him on. He said, look, there's a handful of days I play great during the year. There's a handful that I play garbage. The rest is kind of what makes me up as a player. So I better manage the rest pretty well. That means don't, you know, just use what you have on the day and figure out how to maximize it. And I was like, it sounds great, but it's really hard to do that through emotion. So circling back, that's why, when I see a player that's able to get in those situations and think clearly and find their way out and, or at least find their way into a situation where they can possibly win. Those to me, those are this really special people. This, the special physical talents, that's great, but that's God given and whatever. But when you have someone that's able to do that, they're going to get close to whatever their potential is. So that's why I really don't care who I'm helping. If they have those attributes, that means they're probably going to get close to their potential. And that's, that's what I like people that can problem solve people that all they do is try to max out and and exhaust their resources to figure out how good they can be. Amazing. That belief is, and to be so close to that belief. And and I would imagine if we, to, to compare Pete and Roger a little bit, did they both have that unnerving belief? Yeah. Yeah, very. I tell you, Roger was the same way, very different personalities, but the same way. And, and I remember, you know, Roger losing a tough match um, at Wimbledon after being up two sets to love, which has happened about four times in his career at Wimbledon, remember less probably. And an hour later, he was really, he was hour and a half later, he was, you know, kind of playing with his daughters and he was in a really good mood. And I said, let's go for a walk later and talk about the match. He said, fine. So we went for a walk. And I asked him about it and he said, you know, 
he said that happens once in a while you know it's gonna happen to everybody and he said but i can also give you a whole bunch of matches that i never should have won that i did because i hung around and i know when i play well i'll be fine but the thing is if i'm not playing great i can figure it out he, he used to say roger say i can find solutions yeah. And so today I didn't find solutions. He did, but there's a lot of times when I've done that. So he, you know, they get it. You know, those people get it. They're really competitive, but they understand, Yeah. you know, and it's hard to teach that. It's really, and to yeah. me, that's one of the, that's one of the things that's most difficult to teach, but you need to teach it starting from a young age. So kids understand it. Yeah, one of my, one of my favorite quotes that there is out there is is having a tolerance for failure which mm -hmm. Roger which Roger used to say a lot and and I, and I remember hearing him I, I think it was an interview after he was played David Denko and I'm not sure Paul if you were working with him at the time but he was I think he was like 6241 down to David Denko in a, in a slam and he came back and he won let's say 266462 and he said you know, the interviewer said, you know, how were you feeling at 6241, Roger? You know, like, were you pressing the panic button? And he said, no, no. He said, I knew. I knew. They don't have the panic. I can tell you they don't have the panic no, button. No. It just, I knew. I know at some point I'm do, I'm trying to do the right things. At some point my tennis will kick in and and it kicked in and I played well and, you know, it, it took over. So it's such a, it's such a special mindset, but I remember I'm a similar age to Roger and I, he didn't have that in the junior ages, you know, so where it's so, somewhere along the line, he obviously learned it. I know it's right. Right. It's amazing because we talked about that and um, it was really interesting. I said, you know, cause I knew of his temperamental junior days and I said to him, you know, what happened Did you know, your coaches finally convince you did, uh, and he said, you know, he said, I just remember realizing one day that I'm holding myself back. You know, so he said, it wasn't someone that just told him that, you know, he said, I just realized I'm not, a, I'm, I'm getting so emotionally involved in what's happening. I'm not able to find solutions because I'm making decisions on emotion. And it's, you know, and he's, you know, it's fine to be passionate and be emotional, but don't let that kind of drive what your decisions are, you know? And, and I think as you get more mature, you, you can, that's why I think when people say you can't learn certain things, I disagree because Roger's a great example of it. He was a, an emotional temperamental, you know, junior player and he's become Mr. Calm, cool and collected, you know? So I think you can learn those things. And that's, I think why it's really important to help kids when they're young make that a habit because then it just then it's practiced then it becomes normal you know then like that's why you know with Nadal people like guy's oh, so intense he hits every ball like it's a thousand miles an hour I was watching him I'm like that's because that's what he's always done his whole life that's just yeah. normal for him so you can make things normal for you by ingraining that at an early age yeah Paul I'm just gonna I'm gonna take you back a little bit um, mm -hmm. one, because I'm an LSU tiger, which you might uh -oh. not know about. I won't hold that against you. I won't and, hold it against and you. And my biggest rivals in college were the Tennessee Volunteers. Oh, which, okay. As I did my research on you, you, you spent three years, I believe, at the University mm -hmm. of Tennessee. Now, 
they were such rivals and that colour made me so ill when we played against them. I'm not even going to talk about that. But what I am going to talk about is you turning up to Wimbledon rank 240 in the world and I believe going all the way to the quarterfinals. Is that correct? Was yeah. that after your, was that, was your ranking so low because you were just coming out of college at that time? I think so, but you know, I hope so. I, I don't know, but I just, I remember that um, it was one of the biggest lessons that I learned about big picture mentality because I had worked so hard that year to win the NCAA title. That was my goal. And I worked my butt off all year and I did all this stuff leading into playing in Athens and getting Athens, Georgia, where the SC, uh, sorry, where the NCAA was and really getting unbelievably fit, yada, yada, yada. And I'd only lost, uh, I'd only lost one match all year, I think, going into the NCAAs. I think I was, yeah, I lost one match all year and, and from the fall all the way through. And I was seated one and, you know, big favorite. And I basically just got so tight because I put so much expectation on myself. Um, I didn't play well all week. I ended up losing <clears throat> in the quarters, but it's not that one match. It's just, I didn't play well all week because of that expectation. But the lesson I learned, the macro lesson was that you just work hard and stuff happens. So I worked hard and lost in the quarters but then I went to England and qualified for Wimbledon and got to the quarterfinals. So that's a pretty good trade-off. So what I took out of that was understanding hard work isn't, you know, you set yourself up. That's why I look at Olympians and I go, how do you do, get ready for once every four years? You know, because with us, right? It's amazing. It's amazing. Oh it's so amazing. And, and for, for us, every week's a new, op that's why I love tennis. Every week's yeah. a new opportunity, right? So the hard work, and the professional work is going to pay off somewhere. Yeah. You just got to keep doing it. And so when I went to college and, and lost that match, I was absolutely heartbroken. But then, you know, a month and a half later, I was in the quarters of Wimbledon. My pro career was launched. So it was a pretty good trade-off. And I've got a, a little small thing I'd like to do with you, Paul, at, uh, before we move a bit more into your coaching. Do you remember your record against Andre Agassi? Yeah, I know. I never beat him. It was like, I might as well. well. He used to beat me so bad. I Was it like, it's got to be 0-5 or 6? Well, it was actually 0-3, I believe. You might be 0-3. Okay, only 3. Okay, no, that's, good. Bor that's good. Boris Boris Becker. Never beat him either. Too much power. Probably 0 in, I know, Wimbledon and the ATP finals. Uh, that's two, maybe two Wimbledons. 0-3 maybe? Well, own six on the official oh. records. Owen six. You knew one of them was Owen six. Now, there don't worry. This is going to get better for you. I'm good, starting. Good. I'm starting. Good. You John, put me in my place early. John McEnroe. I beat. I think I beat him twice, um, but probably lost twice as many. Probably two and four or something, or two and two, five. Two and six. Two now, and six. Okay. Two and six. One of the wins on the record books was a walkover. Now. Oh. Whether you're taking it or not, I don't know. No, that, but that that's wrong though. It's wrong though because I beat him in Cincinnati. Yeah. Let's get on to the ATP with this. I'm yeah, going to make I, a note I, on this. I uh, know I beat him in Cincinnati, and I beat him at the U.S. Open. So I'm not even counting the walkover. So, but if you want to count the walkover, that gives me three. That's <laughs> awesome. G Jim Courier. 
Oh, I was so lucky to be. I beat Jim. Um, I think I'm just one and zero against Jim. You are one and zero. Five uh, sets at the Miami tournament. So it used to be five sets back then. In the round of sixty-four, five sets. That's a lot of tennis. Going to have to play to win but that the, tournament. Yeah, <laughs> and the key is if you are you going to go on with more players. I've got one more. Okay, who's that? And this is what I'm setting it up to, Pete Sampras. Yeah, I'm I'm undefeated against Pete. <laughs> I make sure I let him know that I'm I'm undefeated against Pete. We won't one say how many one and zero, one and zero against Pete Sampras. One and, and 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 I think I think I'm undefeated against Michael Chang too. Right, and so okay. the the big joke is is that I get to tell all those people <laughs> that I'm undefeated against them. But I don't tell anyone that when I played them, I don't think any of them were older than 16. <laughs> no, we don't, we don't, we don't need to mention that, Paul, that's for sure. And as we're talking about Pete, how how did that start? So you, you touched on that. So Tim was coaching Pete and he started mentoring you towards that. And I guess it it sounded like it started as almost an interim interim coaching position. Yeah, actually, Peter Bodo wrote, wrote a very interesting article for Tennis Magazine back then called The Accidental Coach. Right. And, okay. um, and basically what happened was I was wrapping up my career. I herniated discs in my back, and I really couldn't play much anymore. And I was down in Australia still competing and mostly playing doubles. And Tim and Pete were, you know, friends. And, you know, I just happened to be watching the matches during the week. And then all of a sudden – Pete was getting ready to play. And I said, where's Gully? And he said, you know, he's in the hospital. And I said, really? And he goes, yeah, he had another seizure and they're not really sure what's wrong. And I said, well, what, you know, I said, what can I do? And he said, well, can you know, just go check on him? So I checked on Gully and he would, they were doing all these tests and he's just said, go, you know, just go sit in the box or whatever. And then they did the test and found out there was something not right. They saw some lesions and some growths uh, in the brain and so he had to fly home the next day. And so basically, you know, Gully just said, you know, we went out to dinner. Actually, Jim went to dinner, too, the night before Gully left. And I think it might have been the night before Jim and Pete played in Australia. Yeah. And, and, and Gully just said, can you, just, you know, Gully and Pete just said, Do you, can you just stay, you know, stay through the tournament? And I said, sure. And so I just stayed. And then the idea was I just communicated with Gully when he got back and, you know, communicated with Pete and tried to mostly stay out of the way. And you guys just tell me how much or how little to do. And then, you know, Gully started his battle once he got home and we all talked on the phone and, and Gully and Pete and I, you know, they, they just kind of said, would you, you know, would you travel with Pete some until, you know, Gully beats yep. this? And so I was like, sure, you know, let's, let's do that. And so, you know, while we were on the road, it was good for Gully, you know, for Pete to be winning, that was good medicine for him. Gully was still involved and really helping me understand how to coach, how to manage the environment with Pete. Cause coaching is one thing, but coaching the number one player in the world is very different. That's kind of a interesting baptism into big time coaching. It's not, it sounds easy, but I was really nervous and apprehensive. And luckily for me, I had both Tim Gullickson, who was ill fighting his battle, and his brother Tom helping me understand, and also Pete at 23 yeah. years of age, you know, because luckily I'd known Pete since he was 16, so he felt very comfortable with me, so I got to know the environment pretty quickly, 
and how to communicate and how to operate and, and how to manage and coach. And that helped. Um, so one thing led to another and, and, you know, I just, I just kind of stayed on and, and coached Pete and Gully fought the good fight until he couldn't anymore. And, and um, then after that, I just stayed on and, you know, the whole, I kind of think the whole scenario for everybody was to just do the best we could at making a horrendous situation a little bit more tolerable. And what's your, you obviously went through some amazing times with Pete, I believe with him for nine of his grand slams, just, just an incredible career that he had, but an incredible career he had with you alongside him, Paul, what's the standout memory that you have from that relationship? Um, mostly that we'd been through a lot, um, personally and professionally. Um, and, and we'd known each other for such a long time. And I think I learned a lot about, um, excellence and a lot about what it takes for people to achieve what seems unachievable. And also even more importantly, that in individual sports and in individual endeavors, it's very different you know, Pete had to do it very differently than Roger does it and had to do it very differently than Andre does it. And Andre had to do it differently than Roger. You know, everybody's personality, you have to figure out how to plug it in, in this scenario. And, yeah. and so I learned a lot about that. And um, most importantly to me is I, I kind of made a friend for life, you know, through good and bad, through wins and losses. We've always been good friends. And uh, unfortunately, because of COVID, we haven't played as much golf as I'd like to lately, but we still get out there and hit the golf ball around and have great tennis chats. And, and um, he's just a, a lovely guy that's, that played a big part of my life and, and allowed me one of the best seats anyone could ever have to seeing some of the best tennis that's ever been played. And I'm conscious of time, Paul. I, I could speak to you for hours. I have so many things I'd love to dig into and just sit and listen myself. I'm a big tennis fan myself. And, you know, all of these memories I've got of these great players that you've worked with and, and yourself, Paul, you know, I could listen, listen all day. So I'm going to jump into to Tim. Um, the podcast is listened to probably 65% of the listeners are, are in the UK. There's actually 15% oh, in the US now. So it, it's starting to, to grow in the USA as well. So if we talk about Tim, the one thing I really want to ask, how did you get Tim Henman to get to a semifinals of, of the French Open? How did that come about? And what do you remember of that run? Yeah, I, you know, when I started working with Tim, I think he was ranked around 40 in the world, but he'd been a top 10 player for so long. I just felt like this is ridiculous. I don't know why he's 40 in the world. Yeah. And we were friends because Tim and his coach, David Felgate, and Pete and myself were friends on the tour. We played golf oh. together sometimes. And so, and so when Pete retired, Tim and I talked often. And, and I remember chatting when he dropped and he said, you know, what do you think about, what do you think about my game and what's happening? And I asked him a few questions and, and a lot of it was circling back to what we started off early about his identity. I, I think he lost his identity. And, okay. and so we spent a lot of time just remembering who he was and why he had been in the top 10 for so long. And this is getting to answer your question in a very long winded way, but we got back to what he does best. I think Tim is if not the best, one of the top five volleyers in the history of the game that I've seen. 
in the last, since 19, whatever, 80. And then the guy's volleys were off the charts. His movement, his professionalism <clears throat> um, was off the charts. And, and the one thing that he struggled with is he didn't have a huge weapon. And that's one of the things that just let him down, didn't let him down. The guy got to, you know, the guy did great at Wimbledon. He just didn't win it. There's nothing more frustrating than me than being in your lovely country and having people think Tim Henman was a failure. Yeah. Tim Henman, it, to me, is the model professional. He was four in the world. That's where his talent was. He wasn't better than that. That's where he was. And he maxed out. And to me, that's a professional. He didn't win the one you know, the one goal that meant the most to him, but he got to be four in the world a number of times. So he did what his talent allowed, but he happened to be in an era with Sampras and even Ivozovich and guys that were just had a little too much firepower at the biggest moments for him at Wimbledon. So basically we circled back to what his skill sets were. And I always thought people thought well, Tim can't play on clay and he loved playing on clay. And I was like, this is a joke. You're great on clay. And people are like, what are you talking about? He moves unbelievably well, loves to slide, has one of the best slice backhands on the planet. Because he's such a great mover, he knows how to get to net, knows how to use his slice backhand to break up the rhythm of a clay court grinder. And to me, for him getting to the semis of the French, I just thought that that was, it was an opportunity. But I was like, doesn't shock me at all. People are, yeah. I remember he played Juan Ignacio Chela, I think maybe – in the quarters yeah i did yeah or the, yeah and people were like oh this is going to be rough i'm like it's gonna be rough it's gonna be rough for cella yeah. i said timmy this guy's gonna have no rhythm the ball's gonna be out of his strike zone it's gonna be a nightmare for cella to play tim and and i'd never understood why people thought that that was a shock and to me it was a great effort but i'm actually surprised he didn't do better more often at rolling garros yeah I think it was about going back to the identity. Yeah, I think yeah. that was one of the things is great players know how to play their style in different situations on different surfaces. And I think Tim's kind of loss of identity or a little bit insecurity showed up earlier on the clay. It shouldn't have, but it did. Yeah. Because I think he should have had a very, very good clay court record because yeah. he's unbelievably fit and fast yeah. and moved well and, and and just I just think he has all the tools to play on everything. So that's yeah. that's my, my story about his French Open. But um, look, he was a he's one of my best friends. Still, it's a great treat uh, to to coach Tim, and uh, I think he had an awesome career. No, he did. I mean, five out of six, five out of six semifinals of Wimbledon in a row. It's my pet peeve when I get in a taxi in the UK or, or certainly back in the day and they would talk about how rubbish Tim Hemman is and he can't even win Wimbledon. <laughs> and it's just, it, it's, it's completely, it completely blows your mind. And now again, we could, I could speak for five hours on Roger Federer, but I do have to, what my thing on Roger, and there's so many things, but one thing, we talk a lot about in England is or in the UK is Andy Murray 2012 because from the British perspective, it was just all eyes on Andy. In my opinion, it was actually the day that Andy Murray was made. You know, we almost saw in front of the, the nation, he poured his heart out and he, he finally accepted he might never win a Grand Slam, which actually maybe opened up the floodgates for him to go on to win Grand Slams. Um, how was it to be 
in the other corner on that day as obviously Roger was number 19 that day. Was it that Roger won back in 2012? Something along those lines. I don't even remember. It, it it's was, just, it's it was all higher. a blur. The, the numbers are all a blur now, so it's hard. But yeah. it was it was interesting. I mean, look, one of the goals, the biggest goal we had, and I don't believe too much in result-oriented goals for players at that stage, but when we started working together, Roger wanted to get back to number one. And he wanted to win another major. And so that, so that day that happened, he won. And then a few weeks later, I think he became number one again. So that was great. But I just remember him being, you know, he's always very calm. You know, I know he's nervous inside, but he's always very calm. And, and he just knew Andy was a great player and he knew he had to serve well. And he knew he had to do a good job taking advantage of Andy's second serve. Yep. And Andy started off really well playing really good tennis. And I did Andy win the first set and then Roger yep. won the next three, maybe. Yep. Is that what it was? Yeah. yeah. He did, yeah. And so, but I just remember again, Roger. Oh, and I never felt, I never felt any sense of urgency or panic. And, yep. and I remember, you know, when they came in on the rain delay, I forget what the score was and Roger sitting down and uh, I said, so what do you think, pal? And, and, you know, and he was just like, he was very, you know, he said, I just got to get a little bit clearer on, on the second server turns. I got to get the first strike in more often. And he just went through like two or three simple things, really totally unemotional, just about what the match was. And then he went out there and just did it. And that's kind of the beauty of Roger Federer is that he, he makes it very simplistic and clear. And then he just goes and tries to do it, you know? And, and for me, I felt horrible for Andy because I'm a huge Andy Murray fan. And obviously with my history working at the LTA for four years, you know, I, I, it was hard for me to watch Andy not win until he did win a major, you know, because I, I'm a huge fan. One of the hardest workers that's ever played the game, unbelievably gifted. So that was rough to see um, for, for me as Andy's, you know, as a fan and friend of Andy, but I was so thrilled for Roger to see him come back and win that. And um, it brought a ton of joy to my heart. And, and then actually I was there a few weeks later when Andy got the gold medal from him in the finals yeah. of the Olympics yeah, at the All right. England Club. So that was, a, that was a great day for Andy to win gold. And Roger was you know, disappointed, but so thrilled and proud to have a silver. And he's good about the perspective stuff. Roger gets that, you know, and then, and then didn't Andy go on, did he win the U S open right after uh, yeah, that? That's him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, that was the beginning of his um, solidification into greatness. Yeah, no, absolutely. And did you expect Roger would still be playing in 2021? I did not. I, I didn't. You know, the one thing that amazes me that you can never count out is how far the joy of doing something can take you. Yeah. And I, I know when the end of Pete's career, he was really kind of tired. He was he was emotionally tired from what it was like to be Pete Sampras and travel around the world. And Roger's not fatigued by that. So I don't know how. I mean, I traveled with him for four years. It's beautiful. It's lovely. They're the most amazing people. You, everything is first class. They're so generous, but it's tiring. You can't go. There's, you can't go anywhere. I mean, everywhere you go, there's, there are responsibilities and accountability and it's, it's a great problem to have, but it's a tiring problem, but Roger doesn't get fatigued by it. He embraces it. He loves the environment. He loves his family being part of it. They are citizens of the world. They get to see all four corners of the globe. And so that's why he's still playing. And I'm fingers crossed that he can just get and stay healthy for a while longer. 
could he give us one more Wimbledon? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I, if he's healthy, you know, for me, he's, you know, one of the top, you know, three or four favorites at worst, if he's healthy, even with very few matches, yeah. I just don't see how he can't be. If he's not healthy, then it's a problem. The only question mark is after not playing for this long, my theme is what happens to his body three out of five sets every other day. That's a lot. It's a lot on a body. And he's one of the most gifted guys in the world, but he's almost 40 now. And, and he has maybe the best man on the planet getting him ready to play in Pierre Paganini, who's an absolute genius. So no stone will go unturned for him to be ready. Um, but let's just have fingers crossed that he's healthy. Paul, our control the controllables end is always a quick fire round. Now, okay. normally we have a bunch of general tennis questions. This one's a bit different. Your you can only answer Sampras, Henman, or Federer. Wow. Okay. The best serve. What if it's a tie? What if it's a tie? Not allowed. No sitting okay. on the fence. No sitting on All the right. fence allowed. The okay. best. The best server. Sampras. The best returner. Federer. The best volleyer. Henman. The best best single-handed backhand. Henman. The best forehand. <laughs> if there was one, if I could tie, I can't believe you're not going to let me tie this one. Can I go Pete from the forehand side, Roger from the backhand side? Yes, you can. That's okay. that's a good tennis coach's way Pete, around Pete, it. Pete, yeah, Pete running forehand, Roger yes. from the offside. Yeah. The hardest worker. Hardest or smartest? Hardest. You said hardest. Hardest. Um, I'm going to go Henman. The least professional off the court. Off the court. What if none of them are? You're just the least out of those three. Who eats the worst? Who eats the worst? Who who has the sneaky cookies at night? And who, you know, who stays in bed? I'm going to give that to Tim Henman. <laughs> he likes his red wine, huh? Tim likes his red wine as well. <laughs> <laughs> the biggest fan base. Roger. The best under pressure. Sampras. The easiest to work with. That's such a tie. Um, God, none of them are. I'll, I'll, I'll give it to Tim. And the hardest to work with. I'll give it to Tim. <laughs> and our last question always on the podcast, who should our next guest be? Before you answer, Paul, you become accountable for getting them on the show. So think, uh, of, think about your answer here. Tim Henman. You could be the man. I'm trying to get Tim. I'm coming from... I was at one point British number one doubles player when he was British number two. Not that I'm not that I'm able to fasten where's his shoelaces. Eva? Where's, where's Evo when you need him? Evo's been trying to get Tim, but Tim's been playing hard to get. So maybe... Uh, maybe maybe Evo, maybe Evo and I can play doubles and try to get him. <laughs> exactly. Tag team him. Paul, thank you so much for your time. It was an absolute honour, honestly, to, to no, sit and you, talk... You would, Thank yeah, you. You as well. I, you as well. I appreciate your patience. I know it was uh, not easy. We had to juggle a few things, but thanks so much for the patience. I enjoyed it and uh, I look forward to it. If we do it next time, can I go on with Evo? 
Can you, me and Evo go Absolutely. Time? Let's get, let's uh, get that happen. Evo's been on twice. He's, he's starting to bully the show a little bit here. So is he? Okay. Yeah. Well, no, the three get... times he's been on three times. Really? He, he's okay. had his own Next show. Time... Neil Skupski right. was on with Neil Skupski and he was on with Mark right. Hilton. So All right. uh, tell him next time he's got to come on with me. Anna Conan Evans. It's a, it's Perfect. a deal. So I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did having the chat with Paul. That really was a special chat for me. I think me growing up as a tennis player, a young tennis player through the the Sampras era, the Henman era, and then obviously the Federer era as well. He he really has, I feel, played a, a big part of of my tennis life without ever getting to to spend much time with him. So that was really special. And as ever, I've got Vicky next to me. Another special podcast. Oh, that was brilliant. I I wish it had rained longer in Rome. (laughs) I think there were so many more questions I would have loved to have asked him, but how well did he speak? Some great insights and some brilliant stories. And I found it really interesting what he was saying about Henman on clay. You know, I have never thought about it like that. I've always thought serve and volley, his game style suits grass. He always did his best on grass. Um, So yeah, I've come away from that thinking, oh, I've got a whole new perspective on, on Henman's game style now. Yeah, and I think that's where his intelligence as a, as a coach comes through really clearly, is his ability to almost match up strengths and reframe how you're able to use that. So almost if we think of tennis as as a war, and it, and it is somewhat gladiatorial, it's almost lining up what tools you have to go into into that war. And okay, in this moment, I need to use my sword in this moment I need to use a hand grenade in this moment I need to now protect myself with my shield you know and it's that type of way and he seems to be such an intelligent guy working with the players in order to do that so what he's obviously done with Tim is he's got Tim to understand that he has certain strengths and I think obviously the big one he mentioned was his movement and then his ability then to change up the play, use the slice. And I think it's very similar to what we've seen Dan Evans do over the last few weeks as well. You know, Dan Evans, not known as a, as a, as a typical clay court player, but Dan's an incredible athlete, moves incredibly well, has different elements to his game. And that's showed by beating Novak Djokovic in Monte Carlo, making the semi-finals. And yeah, I just I I would love to pick Paul's brain even more because he he really did have gem after gem, that and and such a, a simple way of, of looking at the sport. He really did. We'll we'll definitely have to take him up on the Anna Cohn and Evans duo. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think that'd be a fun. very entertaining combo. And he speaks so well, like you said, gem after gem. And often when I'm editing, after you've had the chats, I'll go back and edit it all together. I literally didn't touch that. That was just your entire chat the whole way through. He, he's so articulate, but so much to take from that episode. What were your main takeaways? I think my first takeaway is I felt like I was talking to my next door neighbor. You know, and I think, and I say that a very complimentary, you know, we're talking about here a coach who's coached arguably two of the top five male tennis players of all time. You know, probably the two greatest ever on quicker courts, you know, on grass courts. You know, if you imagine there was a coach who's coached Agassi and then coach Rafael Nadal, you know, that's what that's what we're talking about here. And then you throw one of the greatest ever British players into the mix, who's gone on and made six semi-finals of Grand Slams, you know, including the French Open, four out of five Wimbledons. He's then coached, he's moved over to 
the women's side and had some relative success with Sloane Stevens. He's he's been a, a Davis Cup coach. You know, he's 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 got so much and he's done so much in his career, yet you just wouldn't know it speaking to him. And I, and I think that would be my first takeaway, you know, that you don't have to be Raz, Daz, I guess, Nick Boliteri as such to be to be a great coach. You know, he's obviously just got on, gone about his business. So that came across really loud and clear. The importance of identity, the importance of recognising strength. I think as human beings, we're very good at picking fault. And, and I think naturally as coaches, we can be very good at picking fault and, and then working on weaknesses. Whereas obviously Paul, from his own playing experiences, and I thought that was nice to hear because I'd heard that Paul was very much someone who was big on identity and strengths. And that comes from some of his own experiences that he has. And yeah, I, I without, without question, I think he's someone that is going to help almost anyone he works with. There's no ego there. He's working with Taylor Fritz now. He's quite happy to have other coaches that are doing the main stay of the travelling whilst he's making sure there's the consistency of message that's coming through that. And just just an all-round good guy who has had so much success in the game. The quickfire round was good. Brilliant. <laughs> I and love a, that. And a little story on that. I'd actually... I do prepare pretty well for these podcasts, but with the quick fire, I often just write the questions down a few minutes before. And I just had a little thought to myself, come on, this is what you're doing. Why you know, you can't be asking the guy forehand or backhand when when he's coached all of these greats. And it just had that little kind of I guess moment of inspiration of saying, Right, let's let's give this a go, see how it works. And I just thought it worked so well. I thought his honesty, his difficulty in making the decisions. I thought some really interesting answers. Best backhand, Hemman. Yeah, and, 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 and also best volleys, you know, and I think the best volleys one, I would have gone Hemman for sure, actually. Mm. Yeah, and uh, because Hemman, people forget he was number three or four in the world and didn't serve great and also didn't have a great forehand at all. You know, not a great weight of shot. So he had to do something exceptional, and and certainly the volleys and that his backhand were were truly world class. Uh, whereas the 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 other guys that we're talking about, obviously a different level of careers, um, but the way that he was able to differentiate and pick that out, and I also loved his forehand answer. Yeah. Because how do you pick between Pete Sampras's forehand and Roger Federer's forehand? You know, and the fact that he was able, again, calm in the moment, being able to answer that question and talk about the off forehand and, and the running forehand. I guess for me, that summed up Paul Anacorn for me, that answer. It made me laugh when he said about coming over to the UK and people um, saying that Henman wasn't doing very well or wasn't very good because he hadn't won a Grand Slam. It reminded me, when you were playing in that early noughties, that was when... Uh, People are like, oh, you're a tennis player. Oh, Henman. They'll be like, no. You'd go on an absolute everybody. rampage. Yeah, Taxi everybody. driver, people Just... in hotels, friends. Yeah. What are you talking about? He's been four in the world. He's done this. He's done that. He's done this. And and, and Paul touched on that, I think, as well in the podcast. He, he touched upon, you know, ultimately Henman pretty much maxed out his potential and and that's all that's all we can ever do you know Roger Federer's potential might be 20 20 plus grand slams where somebody else else's potential might be to get to 700 in the world and success is very much relative and and Tim Henman who 
we are going to keep trying to get on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, if he is listening to this, Tim, you know, we're bigging you up here, mate, and uh, we look forward to speaking to you soon. And we can't not mention Iga Svontek after her win in Rome this week. Great. Huh? I mean, just getting to getting to know her. And if you haven't listened to Iga's podcast, I think it's 114. Um, it is well worth listening. She is a superstar. You know, she really is. Um, and she doesn't even know it yet, you know, but she 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 has some serious game. She's she's a sweetheart. She speaks well. She gave us a great insight into that and spending nine or 10 days with her at the academy. And, and I saw firsthand how nervous she was feeling going into this clear court swing. And and I think to see her relax and play the level of tennis she did, certainly in the final beating Pliskova, six love, six love, was was great to see. And, and, and I always then listen to how they talk after these matches as well. And a great lesson here for coaches, players and parents. She just still continued talking about the process. You know, what a great week it's been in terms of her own development. You know, she's learned so many things. She's just won a, a 1,000 event and gone into the top 10 in the world. Yet that really wasn't what was being discussed. It was, and that just shows the power of the sports psychologist and the coaching team around her. Daria Piot are doing are doing an amazing job. And yeah, maybe she has to be favourite or certainly in the top two or three favourites going into the French Open. And we'll have our panellists, mm. who I'm speaking to tonight, which will be out in the next few days to see what they think as well. And thanks to those of you who've been getting in touch to let us know what you think about the episodes. We've heard from Mike Adams in the last week, who said, just listen to Carl Mai's brilliant interview, informative and interesting. I met Carl a few years ago and was impressed with his knowledge and professionalism. I thought you got so much information from him. Not one poor episode yet. Keep him coming. Very nice. And yeah, look, look absolutely love the messages. I, I'll be honest, it, it, it's what, what makes us tick here at Control the Controllables, you know, getting these messages, these kind messages, the constructive messages, it really does make us want to continue doing this and, and bringing this, these amazing people to you. Um, I have to also mention, and I'm sure he won't mind, Mark Hilton got in touch with me the other day, as did Liam Brody, you know, saying how how much more professional the podcast is sounding. So that's a big well done to you, Vicky, and, and all of the team behind the scenes. Uh, but he also did, he said, I've gone back and listened now three or four times to Valerie Condos Field. So if anyone hasn't listened to that, it seems to be almost the most talked about podcast we've had. It's episode 62, and it and it really does have many, many take-home messages. Oh, it's still still my number one, I think. It's brilliant. Like, yeah, it's so many messages, as I think for a coach, parent, for anyone. It's, it's a yeah. great episode. And I would just urge any of you that have kind of come late to the party on these podcasts, I know we do have lots out there, but do use the scroll button. You know, some of our first ever podcasts are brilliant as well. Freddie Nielsen, Johnny Murray talking about their Wimbledon title back in 2012. Gordon Reed, you know, getting the chance to speak to a Wimbledon champion, Paralympian medalist. You know, there's there's so many great episodes. The, the one I want to share, if you don't mind, Vicky, before we go, 
which is quite a special one for us, is Alex Hyman's got in touch and said he's just listened to the Mike James podcast, which was our last podcast last week that so many people are talking about, you know, the data analytics side of the game. And he said that it was quite funny timing when he was listening to it because he was on his way back from training day at IBM uh, oh, no com- coming back from Wimbledon. Oh, have a great time, Alex. You'll love it. It's a brilliant job. So, yeah, brings back good memories for us. That's where me and Vicky met all these years ago. They're still going strong. But Excellent. Still still going strong. Many, many great episodes still to come. Thank you all for, for listening. But until next time, I'm Dan Keenan and we are Control the Controllables. <laughs>